Now on Food FM, it's a new series with Arthur Potts Dawson, The Coffee Table. First of all, a word from our sponsors. Founded in 1927 by Giuseppe and Bruno Bambi, La Mazzocco had its beginnings in Florence, Italy, birthplace of the Italian Renaissance. It seems only fitting that La Mazzocco would earn a world-renowned reputation for making beautiful, high-quality, superbly crafted and uniquely designed espresso machines with great attention to detail. Even today, highly specialised personnel supervise each stage in the production of every single machine, handcrafted to order for each and every client, from the kitchen counter to the speciality coffee bar. The Coffee Table on Food FM with La Mazzocco. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hi, my name's Arthur Potts Dawson. This is Food FM. Welcome to The Coffee Table. We've been talking about the history of coffee all the way from it first being recognised as something we could eat to it being brewed as a green berry and being turned into now perhaps what we know as coffee. We have got a really interesting story to be told around sock juice. But before I talk about sock juice, I'd like to introduce to us our co-host, Marco Rodrigo. Hi, Marco. How are we feeling? We're feeling well. We're going to taste some sock juice. and so It's going to be a good day. <laughs> it's always a good day when you taste sock juice. Uh, Jonathan Morris, you've written Coffee, a Global History, and you've also done a podcast called A History of Coffee. Um, so you kind of know coffee and its history and, and all the way up to today. That's the hope, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do know quite a lot about it, but I have not take, tasted sock juice made by Marco, so this is going to be a new moment for me. Right, we're on sock juice. How it came into being, how the French Parisian cafes uh, started to make sock juice. And, and today we are actually going to be tasting it. So Marco, uh, we're kicking off this episode with some coffee bean grinding, some boiling water and uh, a sock which we're going to be putting the grinds into. So, so let's grind some coffee and uh, start. So, so yeah, we're doing a 15 to 1 ratio, which is always a nice, easy start. And I think from there you can decide whether you want to make it 16 to 1 or 14 to well, 1. What do you mean 15 to 1? You mean 15... So, I'm, so I've got, uh, you know, 15... Say I've got um, 15 grams of coffee. Right, ground. Yeah. Okay. And so we're going to do 225 ml of water. 15 and so to we one, have this okay. kind of 15 to 1 ratio. It's a kind of a nice start for coffee. Right. And then you can play with it. And, and you know, you notice these days in speciality coffee, it's getting weaker and weaker and weaker than in 16 to 1. And, so, and it's incredible. It's almost like homeopathy. The, the, the weaker you make it, the more you almost taste. So what's an espresso? Everyone knows what an espresso coffee is. What is an espresso coffee? These are two opposite ends of the scale. Right. We're, we're, we're talking about high pressure and zero pressure. Right. And everything else falls. I like to look at it in pressure because mm. we start here the sock juice is gravity mm. it's the lowest pressure coffee you can make and then as we go up the scale all the way we start looking at siphons and things which have mm. negative pressure it's mm. a vacuum it's not a push it's We're a pull. so uh, this is a sock it doesn't look like a sock although it is it's almost like a muslin bag yeah. Marco is pouring in his ground coffee which you just hear ground in his lovely little machine here and now we've got uh, hot water is the hot water at 100 degrees or what's the temperature I just got it under 100 degrees degrees I kind of got it around 92 um, this is a really delicate little Peru and I'm you know I don't want to sort of burn it up like a robusta and so we, we, we first pour it on look how it blooms the first thing we do for every gram of um, coffee we're going to put um, a, a, two grams of water basically mm -hmm. and with all this is all this phenomena is the blooming is the coffee releasing its carbon dioxide mm. I think people are fanatical about this part of the process thinking that it really does something I don't believe it does anything now there's it, bubbles there's bubbles appearing I can see a little sort of creamy top it's almost like you know when you see coffee in your cup you can see that sort of creamy top arriving and and the smell is um it's, it's like mm. it's like toffee it's a little bit almost syrupy in its aroma. I've never really seen this done before. So you're just pouring hot water yeah. over ground coffee beans. But this is exactly the same as a Chemex or a Harry OV60 or any of these new modern techniques. This is literally uh, a material instead of instead of the modern day papers, mm. which have gone, which are extinct now because of COVID. Mm. Um, it's the same paper as the mask. So all the coffee people can't get their hands on coffee paper, Chemex paper, because they're being used to make masks at the moment. Yeah. So um, it's probably, we're all gonna go back to this, but the one problem with this material is once you use it once, you use it twice, mm. it's, it starts to take on an odor, a yeah. smell, and it's hard to control. You know, you wash it, wash it, and you try and dry it really nicely, mm. but there's always that kind of um, mildewy fungal. Aroma. So I, I keep this in the freezer. 
to stop it from smelling. And so, then you, so you keep the muslin in the freezer, and this looks like a, a table tennis bat, but it's got a sort of a sort of sock type muslin wrapping to it. Um, it's a bit like a tea strainer. I shouldn't really say that because it's a coffee strainer. Yeah. Um, and it's sitting over what is a sort of classic kind of almost like. Um, uh, a, a, a laboratory glass beaker with, with numbers along the side oh, of it. that's all I had. <laughs> Not all you had. Marco, this is like Willy Wonka's coffee factory here. And we're at 225 yeah. millilitres. So, you know, you, you've done it precisely. Yes, yeah, so it's 15 to 1. Um, and so this is sock juice. It's not fair to call it sock juice, but what would the French call it? Jus de chaussette. Sock juice. Jus de chaussette. Okay. It's, now, it's now used as a as an insult, isn't it? I suppose if you were to say this is sock juice, I'm not sure how people would take it now. But it's remarkably nice. Come and taste some. It's quite light, isn't it? It's this quite... is a very, very nice way of making coffee. Yeah. It's just a filter, it's just a pour over. Uh, there's something about the material that really does make it nice. Jus de Soissette. Yeah. Okay. I'll back in because it's got cold. And it's really, it's really just a simple filter coffee, nothing special. Hmm. There's a little acidity to it. There's a touch of cream. But you get that dryness, like these red Dry. berries. It's yeah. almost like these red berries, cranberries, and it dries your mouth a little bit inside. Um, is that a tannin? It's not really a tannin, yeah, is it? it but it's a little a bit. It's a little bit tannic, yeah. isn't it? And that, and that can be too strong. And if that's too strong, it's almost like licking the ball of a deodorant. You know, you get that aspro, we say in Italian, your mouth literally closes in on itself. You don't want mm, too much of that. Stringent. Yeah, that's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> there you the long English There is, there is some fruitiness yeah, yeah. to it, isn't yes. it? It's clear, it's Very clean. Um, but there are a little astringency. Yeah. Fruity, too much fruity is bad. You know, people go on and on about fruity. Fruity can be a problem and it's not something that you want too much of. And we, 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 we don't want too much of anything. Nothing should be overpowering. It should always, you should always be looking for some balance, mm. you know? Jonathan, tell me, in the history of coffee and uh, jus de soissette, uh, is, this some, is this a flavour that would have been tasted 400 years ago? Do you think we're tasting something that would have been more or less like this that long ago? Uh, I don't think it would have been as clean as this, is the honest truth. I think Marco's point about what happens when you use your sock more than a couple of times, I doubt that people selling coffee in this way or making it in this way, often making it out in the street in this way, would have been quite as meticulous as Marco. So I don't think we'd have tasted that. We would have tasted, I don't know quite what Marco has got in his blend here, but I mean, in the time of the sort of 1800s, so we're really talking about coffee coming from bit from Java and from the Caribbean so that would be the kind of the origins that would be tasting then so I think it would not have tasted quite as nice as this but I am quite impressed at the way that this brewery has gone actually I have to say it's it's um it makes me think better of a sock yeah I did everything wrong and, it, and we forest gumped it and it still came out quite nice just to let the listeners know that the the clicking in the background of this amazing uh, Marco Arrigo coffee machine behind us. It's an absolute, it's got legend written on it. How old is this coffee machine, Marco? It's a 19, it's actually a 1967. It says 1961 on it, but we have to date it by the boiler, and the boiler is 1967. Okay, and well, we're going to be talking about coffee machines way down the line here, but I just want to let any, every listener know that if you hear the pops and clicks and whizzes, this is the Marco Arrigo coffee house uh, in full swing. So, uh, Marco, we're, we're talking about history. We're talking about coffee. Fantastic that we've got this off the ground and we're really now digging into where coffee has come from, how it's been connected to different cultures around the world. Um, we've come all the way through to the almost the 17th century, haven't we? We're, we're drinking Jus de Soissette, yep, which is in, coffee in, through a sock. That's it. And, and that's from Paris. We're in the, sort of the 1700s, yeah. a, 18th century. That's really okay. where we are now. Okay. Yeah. And so, so what's the journey then? We're well, drinking, we, we're drinking coffee through a sock, and yeah. where does coffee go from well, there? We we hit a point here where I think we didn't agree. Um, at this this beginning of the 1700s, I thought that the King Louis was presented with this coffee tree that became the, the noble tree that then was the father of all the coffee, most of the coffee trees around the world. But that sometimes I get a story that's not proven. And so I was going to ask Dr. Jonathan to fill us in. Is that not true, that story? Or is it just you can't find evidence? Uh, I, no, I think that there's some... You can make some sort of form of that argument. I mean, I noticed that the point, I suppose, that I was thinking of is where does this coffee tree come from originally? It came mm. from this sapling in, in, in Amsterdam. So 
it's sort of yeah it is seen as i guess that you're right it's seen as the father of all the stock that goes out from france to uh the island of bourbon off africa but also particularly to the caribbean to the french colonies in the caribbean martinique and what was called saint-domingue uh modern day haiti so in that sense yes that's true but I yeah. thought the interesting part of that conversation was that that's why we've got 12 species around the entire world because it was stolen from these couple of cuttings and that's it. Although yeah. there are thousands back in Ethiopia still undiscovered. What do you mean when you say stolen, Marco? Because stolen is quite a big word. If someone's stolen a tree from someone else and moved it. What, what, Literally what you... stolen. I mean, like the spices were protected and, and they were... Uh, you know, you could you nutmeg and cinnamon and clover and all the, and, and cloves and all these things were on particular little Pacific islands that um, Dutch, the Dutch or the or the French or whatever would 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 protect with their lives because they had the monopoly on that spice. And I think coffee was treated very much in the same way at the beginning, and you literally had to steal. It was easy enough stolen. It's a tr it's a tree, you know. <laughs> well, but it wasn't easy enough stolen, was it? That was that that was the thing because the Ottoman uh, the Ottomans basically. Uh, wouldn't allow anyone to take any live coffee stock from their growing area in Yemen. And so the uh, the way that this noble tree arose mm. is that, I mean, you're, you're st there's a story, there's a double story here, because basically, first of all, the first people to get a coffee plant outside of the Ottomans are the Dutch, mm. yeah? And um, but where do they get it from? Well, that's interesting because they actually pick it up in India, in Malabar, like mm. you, like like we've discussed. But how did it get to India? But how did it get to India? Now there's a great another great one of these mythical stories about a guy called Baba Budan mm. who supposedly did the the Hajj and then smuggled back some coffee seeds in his clothing, and you can decide whether it was in his underpants or whether it oh, was he, in his turban. Kopi it. Uh, you might well say that. Uh, but the other thing, I mean, Baba Budan is a is a great figure in great religious figure. But I mean, according to legend, he would have been about 550 at that time. Oh, he's biblical. So now. I don't think it's <laughs> quite. Yeah. But anyway, so my my theory, for what it's worth, uh, is that that coffee got there because we know that a lot of the trade was controlled. Actually, the actual trade was done by these merchants who were based in Gujarat, and so I suspect they put a bit of coffee in Malabar to have a reserve supply. It's a viable seed. I mean, I've always said to many roasters, you, you do realise that what you're receiving are viable seeds. These are things that you can plant and they should be able to grow. And it's a self-pollinating tree. You literally drop green coffee, you should get a tree, you know, if, uh, as, long as, as long as you do the right things. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the other side of that is that what the Ottomans wanted people to do was actually they would sort of, um, they're supposed to have actually boiled the coffee beans, the green beans, slightly before they shipped them to make sure they wouldn't be viable, right. you know, and they, they very strictly controlled the trade. So they would, anything going up the Red Sea, the Ottomans intervene at a certain point, anything going through um, the sort of the Ottoman territories, they intervene to make sure that it wasn't viable. So this was a big thing. So it gets used by the Dutch, they plant it in Java. That seed, one of those seeds is given from the Dutch Royal, um, their version of Kew Gardens, if you like, mm. to, uh, the French version, so to King Louis, and it's King Louis' then garden, it's uh, what do you call it, botanic garden that supplies this stuff uh, out to those French traders who go and take it into those other areas. And we've got some great myth stories about that. Do you know about uh, Gabriel de Clue? Have you, have you heard of him? 1723? The guy who had a mistress. Oh, no, I think they all had mistresses. Oh, French, well, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Alright, he, he officially had a mistress. <laughs> yeah. um, his wife didn't mind her smuggling uh, seedlings in her bouquet or something. I, I do remember a story how he took... Uh, I think he took the uh, coffee to... Uh, uh, you, know what you're, you know what you're thinking of that? Yeah, you're thinking of... Um, the Brazilian who smuggles the yeah. coffee, who no. gets easy, who uses his wife's booty, That's it. bouquet, it. That's not her boutique, her bouquet. <laughs> uh, no, just before that, there's this guy called De Clue, who supposedly had a seedling, and he puts it in a little, oh, puts it in that little uh, glass jar thing, you know, mm -hmm. and he shares his water ration with it as they go across the ocean oh, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then, um, what you know, this is supposed to go to Martinique, and then it multiplies hugely in 50 years on this what is it 20 million trees or something ridiculous I, it's it, uh, it strikes me if ships are now crossing the atlantic aren't they and we've got yeah. sugar tobacco and slaves as well as cod being shipped across you know the americas to europe 
Coffee has always eluded me as being a part of that relationship, but it sounds like it must have been. Oh, it's a huge part. But I mean, there's there's a very key thing to say about coffee here, and that is that, you know, coffee is symbiotic with sugar. So in the Caribbean, you grow the sugar cane on the lower ground and you go the hot, grow the coffee on the high ground. So uh, all of those uh, islands that we associate particularly with sugar planting, then what do you use the mountainous area for? You go up and put coffee there. So uh, although we think about sugar as being the ultimate slave trade uh, commodity, actually coffee exists in a relationship with that. Was it seen as the bad land or the good land? Is that, I know that lots it's, of people... Oh, it's the bad land. Because I mean, it's, it's the, I mean, it's turned out to be the good land yeah. because we know that it does well up there. But at the time, no, it's seen as the less good land. And usually it's the land that's, uh, that's last occupied. Because there's always these small islands that they, they, they had the good land in, you know, the good coconuts grew inland, and so they give it to the clever son, the nice son. And then the idiot son, you give them the beachfront because you can't do a lot with it. And of course, all the millionaires now are the ones who owns the beachfront and then have rented it to the Marriott's and the Hilton's, and, and it's gone the other way around. And the poor clever son who's got a degree is, is on a tractor and, you know, looking after some sugar. And it's, it's, it's flipped. What well, they I'm, thought was I'm, good has turned out to be not good commercially profitable but, but when you so say, i've got one further yeah. point on that if i may which is that um the land that the coffee goes on which is the which is the bad land in the inland yeah. that is land it's the last bit to be occupied and quite often who it goes to is the uh basically the products of the, the sort of the sons of the owners of the big sugar estates who they've had with the slave women that they've slept with okay so one of the i mean we could do a, a, a story here which is which is true which is that you know i talked about saint domingue and saint domingue is like the the largest producer of coffee towards the end of the 18th century just before the french revolution and i say just before the french revolution because in the french revolution these guys the sort of the mixed race guys who were, you know, they thought that the French Revolution meant they were going to get their rights. Mm. And when the French didn't give them their rights, they rose up against the French. So it's sort of, you know, it creates this really complicated situation. Mm -hmm. I can see. So the coffee plant has now migrated, like you say, someone uses his ration of water to bring the plant across the Atlantic into the Americas, either the Caribbean or the, the southern states of America or, or South America. So now the coffee plant is in the Americas. So here's another bit where we uh, had, a, had a problem. Now, we, I have here, 1773 Boston Tea Party makes drinking coffee a patriotic duty. And we all were told this story at school, that the Americans threw all our tea in the, in the, in the Boston Harbour. And, and, and this isn't 100% true then, or was this just warped and twisted to fit their politics at the time? Well, so the answer to that is that they, uh, they threw our British tea in the harbour, but they didn't necessarily stop drinking tea. Oh, they threw okay. in so, the harbour. Exactly, right. Yeah, so, uh, the, so the big protest is don't buy anything British. Right. So lots of tea, so throw it in the harbour. Right. Uh, so there is an element of, you know, oh, it's patriotic to drink coffee, but only if it's not British coffee. Remember, quite a lot of the coffee coming at that time in this, this sort of early period, we're still being British coffee, so they don't want to drink that either. They don't want anything that come out of Jamaica or whatever. Uh, and that sort of, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I suppose there's a bit of a switch towards um, some of the other suppliers, Cuba and later Brazil. But in terms of taste, actually really the big flip in taste, it comes a little bit later, and I think it comes with the Civil War. That's when um, you get this sort of you get a, a key division between like the union, the union and the, and the confederate, yeah, and that the union have got coffee and they drink it all the damn time. They drink ten cups of coffee, twelve cups of coffee a day. That because it keeps them happy. You know, mm. if you're a general, you want your your troops to drink coffee. Well, weren't the confederates drinking acorns? Because they couldn't get any coffee because they've the been union, blockaded yeah. by the <laughs> union. Exactly. So, but what it also meant was you create huge demand. Mm. Yeah, because you've, you've, you've accustomed all these people to drinking coffee. Come the end of the Civil War, you've got a whole new market developing for coffee because these people have got a taste for it now. These people were drinking beer before coffee. 
they were drinking beer for breakfast. I mean, you can you they were drinking a lot of beer. I mean, the numbers. Yeah, well, the numbers I mean, were again back in Europe. That was the whole idea: is you drank beer because you know water on its own was not particularly great stuff. So, mm. yeah, yeah, drinking beer, that bit of fermentation. You know, I mean, you're you're a big expert on fermentation. I know, and mm. that's sort of, um, you know, that was the way that you made things safe. If you see, if you see what I mean, so. Uh, that's true. It's still dirty water. They just fermented it. I mean, this is yes. this whole notion yeah. that the water was dirty, so drink beer. What do you think the beer's made out? You know, a bucket of water out the Thames, <laughs> you know? Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. The Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927. So, so we've come to uh, the French Revolution. Um, we know that they've up in arms in Haiti, um, where the, the, the mixed race, um, African, Caribbean, French, um, sort of sons and daughters of, of, of slave plantation, uh, they're sort of uprising. Yeah. So into the 1800s, 17, you know, sort of from, from 1790, you're talking about this French Revolution kicking off and yeah. things really changing in Europe. Well, changing in Europe and changing in the world of coffee. Uh, because when you're getting to that stage, basically Haiti uh, ceases to be the major supplier of coffee. There's some supply coming in from Asia, but what it really does is begin to stimulate the first interest in growing coffee in South America. And that changes the complexion of it. And then events through that 19th century make that even more the case. Uh, so by the end of the 19th century, uh, there's no doubt that, you know, Brazil is the absolute dominant country in coffee, that uh, coffee is now really what we now think of as a Latin American drink. And where they're selling all that coffee to is our friends in America. Mm. So it's like we've got this market, you've, you've got, you know, grow it in the south, sell it in the north, and it becomes big sustaining circle that, you know, the bigger the bigger amount of the market the bigger amount of coffee you grow the bigger amount of coffee you grow the lower you can force the price the easier it is to sell the coffee in the market and so it goes round and round didn't haiti's problems come from the fact that they abolished slavery and then it fell apart they started burning the plantations and then it fell apart because they abolished the slavery the labor force well not really. I mean, I think that they certainly attempted to abolish the worst elements of slavery, uh, but actually they reinstituted some pretty mm. uh, difficult growing things. But what it really came from was that mostly people didn't want to do business with, um, they didn't want to do, to be blunt, business with black people. Mm. They didn't want to do, they didn't want the idea of a black republic. I mean, this was what made Napoleon, uh, you know, that was why Napoleon was so fierce. Mm. in trying to oppose this and in the end of course he gets into um well you you know these stories about french coffee and i probably you've probably yes. tasted some of this french french coffee you know where they start chicken in the chicory and what have you this whole use of chicory because we were blockading them so mm. they couldn't get coffee in mm. so when you say that the british were blockading coffee coming into france so the napoleonic wars now yeah coffee changes in france and they start adding chicory to it uh, for added flavour or toasting chicory. Well, bulking, they, so. bulking, really. I mean, chicory and acorns and things like this were just um, alternatives to coffee. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's like you're roasting a root. I, I don't know if Marco's ever done this, but you roast these roots of chicory or whatever. Mm. And my take on it is it, it, I find it very peppery as a taste. I don't know if you've tasted it. Chicory coffee, have you ever had it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I've tasted it. Camp. I mean, camp coffee. I, I, I laugh when people uh, knock it because you've got to remember what it is and what it was used for, you know. Is what English gentlemen took on safari, you know, in the 1800s and stuff. It has a place in the world. It's a it's a liquid chicory base. It's not that unpleasant, but it's it's it basically when you roast coffee, lots of the flavours when you roast coffee incorrectly, you can taste in chicory, which is interesting. It's very oh, wheaty, very yeah. granular, very grainy, very wheaty. Those are things that go wrong in roasting. So it's a weird yeah. sensation for somebody who knows about coffee to drink because it just reminds you of all the imperfections and mistakes you could have made roasting. That's a really interesting point, yes. Mm. Though I, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the camp coffee is really interesting. This is a bit, a bit off the the track but camp coffee of course has no coffee whatsoever it's pure chicory mm. but um so come uh, i remember i went to do some research on this mm. right and i hadn't really appreciated that so i went i was looking at the first world war 
and went up to have a look at the the archive and um, these people in uh, running the the camp coffee company it's, it's Patterson's mm. in Glasgow they were they were wetting themselves as it were but they were wetting themselves because all the chicory was grown in Germany um. right they were whether it, you know we still had control of the oceans but we were they they were screwed because all the chicory was in Germany so we ended up having to grow chicory in but South chicory, Africa chicory the salad chicory well, it's the root. You use the root. Okay. So, yeah, it, it, you know, that's, that is the sort of thing. You know, if you see that plant oh, develop... We are going to you know. taste this next time. But it sounds like, though, that coffee is obviously caught up in this sort of global... I mean, the Napoleonic Wars pressed a lot of issues in America, pressed the British to work harder, uh, to perhaps seek other places to buy or and the empire was being born by the, the british empire i'm talking about and now. plant and, and, and plant coffee perhaps uh, in in different places yeah, around salon. the world and this is important to say at this point that then the british planted very aggressively in salon and it's in it's inter- it's a very interesting story salon well we're there now aren't we let's yeah, talk about, let's salon, talk about yeah. it because yeah. that, that's absolutely true they, they planted in salon and uh, actually, by uh, sort of sometime around the middle of the century, one one or two years, Salon is the biggest producer of coffee in the world. Uh, and then comes, you know, the absolute uh, disaster for coffee when uh, coffee leaf rust appears in Salon, 1869, and uh, it just gradually destroys coffee leaf rust, destroys all the coffee in Asia and uh, around even into bits of Africa. Uh, So that's wiped out. And that's another reason why Latin America becomes such a big producer of coffee, because they don't get hit by coffee leaf rust at that point. Mm. If that affects the coffee industry so greatly, then coffee leaf rust is what? It's a parasite, it's a fungus, and it attacks the roof or the leaf, uh, the root or the leaves. Well, what does coffee coffee leaf rust do? Yeah, it's a fungus mm. and uh, uh, Humilia vastrix, and it attacks the leaf. But what happens is that the leaf it gradually sort of kills the leaf, and then the leaves drop off the plant, and eventually the plant can't reproduce. So it's a, it's a sort of a relatively slow death, but it absolutely devastates, therefore, the yields. So you're, you know, if once you've got it, if you can't get rid of it, you are, you are, you're just going to see your coffee gradually erode to zero. And the problem you have is as that leaf comes off and goes on the floor, it spreads it. You have to physically take every leaf and burn it. Mm. You have to remove it and burn it. And it's a fastidious thing. I mean, it's, it's okay in your garden if you've got one pear tree that's got a bit of leaf rust, but when you've got plant massive plantation it's a, it's a huge huge problem okay and so uh, uh, it sounds like obviously uh trade is accelerating the world is opening up the british empire is in place the french and the spanish also the americans are becoming strong the south americans are growing food and selling it to these empires what's happening to coffee now is it modernizing in cafes are we drinking it differently when when do we mechanize coffee we're still getting there i think that what's happening still is cuba is is having some some disasters and they go back to sugar they go back from from uh, from growing coffee to sugar well, what's the disaster coffee leaf rust well the coffee leaf rust it mostly was something in asia and africa mm. i heard a story now i'm glad to have you here because you'll probably tell me it's rubbish but i heard a story that they uh, coffee leaf rust had, had got rid of a lot of the coffee in the world but they had found some coffee trees that were growing deep in the amazon jungle or somewhere that was completely protected is this have you heard anything about this? No. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know that. I think what we're, what we're talking about is really more that just because those trees are in Brazil particularly, mm. they're protected by the fact that there's an ocean separating them at that point. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think so. But I think to, to get on to um, Arthur's point, I think what really is beginning to happen is that uh, as we say, is that market particularly really you're, you're beginning to get a mass market, particularly in America, and that or potentially a mass market, right? So until this point, if you if you think about it, all the coffee tends to be what you would do is you would tend to go and buy green coffee from your local grocer and roast it yourself, mm. or maybe your grocer would roast a little bit of it. But now, from about the 1850s, 1860s, we're seeing big roasting. You know, once you get an, an American army doing roasting, that's a big thing, mm. yeah? Once so you get these factories for the first time and you get these coffee brands and you get these huge sort of roasting plants. So we're really seeing, as like, like Arthur said, the industrialization of roasting, yeah. um, you know, and the ways that that becomes done are really quite interesting, aren't they, in terms of, you know, 
the development of the way that you got with roasting over. You know, we used to have this roasting fat, over it, a flame, but what what are we doing now? It was brands. Roasting came and made. It was the first kind of brands, and brands was a, a point in time where food is mixed with all sorts of terrible things, and the the, the whole concept of brands to to protect the, the public from what the what the grocer could be doing and so people were taking responsibility and the, the first one of course is Arbuckles yeah that's that what, what so so the first kind of recognized brand of coffee, coffee in the world was called Arbuckles, Arbuckles. this is uh, 1865 quite a long time ago and I love the idea that they were using old peanut bags to sell their roasted coffee and I think there was wasn't there a slogan I don't know if it was this one or there was a slogan you can't roast coffee properly yeah. yourself yeah yeah that's exactly <laughs> what they did because they got to convince people exactly of that you know why should you buy our pre-roasted coffee well you can't roast it properly yourself it's a bit like me trying to make coffee with you Marco and you just say yeah you can't make coffee yeah, yourself can you come to my shop and I'll do it properly for you <laughs> and um, it's sort of like in a way that's their whole slogan is like you know if you do it yourself you'll make a mess of it you'll burn it you do this we're the experts mm. we're the brand we always do it right but look how forward thinking they were because that this is you've got to remember this is the cowboy coffee you know when you used to watch the the cowboys getting on their wagons with these pots and they're just putting powdered coffee into a pot and boiling it it sounds disgusting i mean this is how you make soup you know i'm, I'm you this is the kind of coffee you could stand a screwdriver up in you know it's very thick and the more you boil it and percolate it the worse it's going to taste but I, i've seen all of those cowboy movies where mm. that coffee pot is on the it fire it looks yeah. fantastic and the beans are bubbling actually, and i think oh i'd like to eat that you actually don't need to put coffee in it after a while you just put water in it and just makes coffee forever but the, 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 the whole thing that they were doing the brands was coming out this coffee came with a peppermint stick i don't know how they did this did it come attached to the bag did they give you the peppermint stick alongside i've seen I this on they had it, little, it was in a little wrapper inside is what i think because oh. this is a famous story isn't mm. it if you've got the peppermint stick right What's supposed to happen is when you've got the wagons going somewhere, or if you've got the cowboy party, and you've got the one bloke who's who's going to do the uh, the cooking the coffee, mm. but he needs somebody to grind it all, and he sh he basically shouts out and promises that he'll give the peppermint stick to whoever comes and grinds the coffee. Oh. Right, so it's like an inducement to get people to come and do the. And grinding. it's such a strong flavour. Why would you pick peppermint to go with coffee? It but, doesn't but even was it go. Sweet? I, was I it think sugary? that might correspond to your description of the screwdriver in the coffee okay. market and what you might need to get over it. But they also yeah, came very with, sweet. It also came with coupons. And this is so advanced. This is loyalty cards and everything going on in this cowboy yeah. town. It's coming with coupons. You could get a, tools or a wedding ring or all sorts of different things for these coupons. I mean, this all happened at once. It was an amazing start. It's, 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 it's a marketing sort of phenomenon. Time. Yeah, that sort of 1860s to 1880s, 1900s, mm. is the, that's the real industrialisation of coffee. Suddenly you're talking an industrial good, aren't you? You know, something... But are, are people still drinking coffee in the same way? Is it a roasted bean, ground and then hot water poured over the top or just boiled in a kind of, you know, on a, a jug with a lid and then just poured out hot? It doesn't sound like there's any mechanisation of the coffee system yet. It sounds just like it's beans, hot water, boiling and pouring. Yeah, in terms of the preparation, the biggest change is... Um, percolation oh. yeah so you can create these percolating pots and that's really what they're doing of the you know so it's circling circling the water through the coffee uh but yeah that's that's about where we've got to and that's one of the worst ways of making coffee the the, the, the whole thing about a coffee bean is it's going to give up so much and then you not you've got to know when to stop because then all the it's almost like leaving the tea bag in the pot you've got to know when to take the tea bag out the pot and with coffee the longer the solids are in contact with the liquid the more of the rubbish comes out the minerals the caffeine the salt the nasty stuff the bitter stuff the astringent stuff and so it's, it's a real it's a real snapshot in time and then you steal that beautiful bit and let the rest go and these percolators and anything that stays in contact for too long even the cafetiere the cafetiere is a perfectly good way of making coffee as long as you decant the coffee immediately but if you leave the coffee sitting in its own dirty bath water it's going to become worse and worse and worse not not better so cowboy coffee no good astringent bitter strong uh, and then you maybe start percolating or get the coffee beans out of the hot water as quickly mm. as possible yeah. and then you've got something that resembles 
a more modern day style yeah. coffee. Well, which was why your uh, the uh, the sock juice coffee that Marco gave us was tolerable. But if he'd done the same thing as a cowboy coffee, I think we'd be having a very different reaction. Mm. I don't think we'd be taking seconds of that. Mm. So, what other important dates are there in the nineteenth century that that can sort of fast forward into us understanding coffee as we sort of know it today? Uh, are there any sort of more? I mean, no, this is you, really, Jonathan. This is the complicated bit now, and I think where Brazil comes in hard. Yeah, well, so, I mean, as we said, Brazil was becoming more and more of an industrial producer. So Brazil, by 1906, Brazil produced 80% of the world's coffee came from Brazil. 80%? 80% of it. And 70% of that 80% went into America. So you're talking like, you know, that's what I mean about this sort of symbiotic relationship. So what happens in Brazil is they're pushing out all the time further and further into the interior taking new bits of land into production in order to sort of just grow more coffee and keep churning it out. And there's an interesting moment here because we've talked a little bit about slavery, but actually this really happens post-slavery. And what the Brazilians are doing is recruiting people from all over the world on kind of like, you know, this kind of debt schemes, you know, we'll, uh, you, you take on a debt, but we'll bring you over to Brazil. And once you've paid off your debt to us, then you'll be your free man with your little bit of land. But of course, it takes you forever to pay off the debt. And I've always thought, Marco, that you would appreciate this story that I mean, the first people who went under that system mm. were called colonos, and they were called colonos because they they were really from Italy, mm. most of them. And they uh, got so bad, the Italian government had to step in. And this is the yeah. bit that interests me, because I suspect that you, like me, would think when the Italian government says something's bad, yeah, it must be shocking. It must be absolutely <laughs> bloody <laughs> awful. So what do you mean? So you, there's this band of people, or a group of people, leaving Italy as colonos so, 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 to yeah. America? So yeah, you, exactly that. Yeah, right. sorry. Sorry, on. you have this thing where it's almost like the the, the Brazilian imperial family's overthrown, and you know they, they 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 stop. When did they stop slavery though completely? It wasn't until the eighteen eighties, the final final yeah. abolition. So there was a period when you know people who were born to slaves born free, but the slaves were still enslaved. It's not until the eighteen eighties, and that's why it lasts so much longer. I mean, to give some context to that. You know, um, America had banned the slaves being brought into America in the 1800s. Mm. Britain was actually stopping the slave trade, had got the, um, you know, got gunboats out, preventing them being traded into uh, on the high seas. But Brazil just kept kept its slavery, yeah. kept its slaves. And really, truthfully, when they abolished it, it wasn't like they did any better. In some ways, they did worse because they go out and recruit all these colonos and chuck the original slaves out of their land. So then the first thing that happened was they would... The, I think it was the first law where anyone who's born from a slave became free and then the sort of second phase of it came yeah. that um, after a certain time you're free. But b- between stopping slavery, what did you do to the slaves you had? I mean, they kept on being slaves. The new wave of slaves that literally came from Italy and then later on different countries, I think Japan yeah, and different, Japan's different countries, right, yeah. they were still kept like slaves. They were, they, were, they were tricked into coming over and then when they arrived, they were given a house and they were given this, but then they were given the bill. It was and it was literally modern day slavery. It was just slavery in another form, where it was in this indentured servitude almost, exactly. where you, where you started off with a huge debt that you were never going to pay off, and so it's a form of slavery, but it's just a loophole in the law. So coffee kept people connected to the land. They were growing coffee for large companies that were making money selling coffee to the uh, to America. Was any of that coffee saying? 70% of the coffee grown in Brazil was sold to America, so then 10% must have been grown or sold elsewhere, perhaps in Europe. And yeah. what then is going on with coffee post-Brazil? Because if Brazil goes through this huge explosion, surely someone is trying to compete with Brazil. And, and doesn't at some stage Brazil start to get some type of illness in its coffee plants? I mean, there's something happens there, doesn't it? Well, what really happens is Brazil starts overproducing coffee for the world demand and at the same time as you say some other countries come into the market notably colombia so you get a growth of colombia you also get guatemala is another one uh but the so the this sort of if you like creates the real problem that the brazilians have got too much coffee and uh in as they can't sell it all they devise various schemes to try and to keep it off the market and um, they end up in, you know, you end up in ridiculous things whereby in the, in the 30s in particular, which is the worst time of all because they've hit the, the Great Depression in um, the sort of economies where they're selling. So people are, demand is dropping and you've got bumper, bumper harvests in Brazil. 
and you've got this extra competition from Colombia. So they end up trying to keep the coffee. They basically destroy their own coffee, yeah? They burn coffee, uh, or they throw it in the sea, or they do sort of... Uh, they look for lots of alternative uses for it, like they um, turn it into fuel for their uh, their steam engines, mm. uh, which must have, must have been smelt fantastic. Smell, what a yeah. journey that yeah. would have been. But... Um, <laughs> It's so. I mean, there's a real, there is a real problem with that. So it's yeah, it's you slave labour to to produce a lot of coffee and then got itself in trouble. Going back slightly, we 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 wanted to go coffee in 1880. The English decide to plant tea back in Ceylon. We spoke about Ceylon earlier, planting coffee. And now, after this leaf frost, you've got to remember all of this is going on with Brazil. Of course, in in Asia, they've got this leaf frost going on, and they start to plant tea in in uh, Ceylon and this the commercial bit here is when they start roasting and they start roasting with hot air and this is when it becomes commercial and big and they start really producing uh, a lot of coffee and for the American market and we have something set up which we can do in a minute well, well, well now you're enticing me Marco because when I look at your kitchen I've got bits and I mean if I could make the sound of all of the bits and pieces in this cup I've got Glasses hanging, whisks, jugs, uh, open bottles. I mean, it, it really is Willy, Willy Wonka's coffee shop. Um, Marco, what is it you're going to be doing now? So we've kind of got to the point here where we're looking at the, the roasting and, and the first big commercial roasting. Up until this point, they were literally, you know, stirring beans in a frying pan. And so the, the, the first sort of type of roasting was hot air. And this was hair, air at about 220 um, degrees. Well, let me explain to the listeners. We've got two sets of green coffee beans here, Marco, and it looks like you're measuring out. And um, what are these, Ethiopian coffee beans? These are Ethiopian. They're green. And there's two types here. Well, can you tell the difference? One looks a little bit more caramelly, a little, a little browner. But So these are the rejects out of the reject bucket at a right. factory. Mm-hmm. And these are pristine. And you can see the, the, the massive difference in them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't need to be a coffee expert. Just look at them. I'm not a banana yeah. expert, but I can go into Tesco's and say those two should go in the bin. The left-hand ones, which are obviously the rejects, they look a little bit bruised. They look a little bit dustier. They look a little bit like they get a bit rusty. Mm. And the right-hand ones have got this lovely kind of olive, very light olive green, not so powdery, lots of different shades of light green. Mm. And so visual is always a good start, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I just say also that there is in the middle of these two uh, green coffees is what this looks like a coffee, you know, it looks like a popcorn machine, it's, is it? Yeah, yes, it, it is a popcorn machine. It's a, yeah. tw- it's a 12 pound popcorn machine, which I bought two years ago. And I keep trying to break it and it just won't break. And this is exactly the same temperature as a, co- as, a, as a coffee roaster, and it goes through exactly the same process uh, as when we roast coffee in a, in a big roaster. And if it doesn't make too much noise... But I've got one of these popcorn machines at home for the kids. I mean, it's literally just that. Yeah. Okay. So it, it does. Yeah. Okay, so, so the beans first go in, and you can see how heavy they are. The beans are just sitting in they're the... They're sitting low. Yeah, they're sitting in the bottom of the popcorn roaster and they're just rolling around the base and this is this is hot air that's doing this just isn't it? hot air but yeah. you're starting to see the silver skin that the bean is slowly expanding it's losing some volume it's losing some weight it's losing some moisture and the smell and is fantastic starting to see yeah. these little specks floating around oh yeah and, and it looks this, like it's snowing upside down snow and, and this chaff that's coming out is, is uh, apparently one kilo of coffee can produce enough chaff to roast one kilo of coffee, but I don't think anyone's been able to make that as efficient. As now these, these coffee beans are turning; they're, they're almost turning a light toffee colour. They're going and yellow. It's, it's toffee yellow, uh, a little bit brown. Marco's running away to do something. It's snowing upside down with the coffee chaff, and uh, is uh, the touches of yellow. Touches of golden brown. Here we're going first crack. We're I almost coming to the first snapping. crack. I'm just going to give you the sound of this. And this is the, the skin of the bean. It's, it's finally popping. It's like marshmallow over the side. It really is. They're, they're toasting, they're popping, they're cracking. It's snowing upside down. I mean, you've got these, this chaff lifting up out of the popcorn maker. And the beans are lifting up That's in the light. machine. They're getting much lighter. And now this cinnamon. And we've gone past this. It's all, they're all cracking now. They're all coming on. 
and 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 most most uh, roasters will some, some of them will go to second crack this is just the first one you can see already how quickly they've changed color and the aroma is now turning um a little bit uh, chocolatey oily it's oily now yeah. the oils you see there's been no smoke up to now there's no oils developed the oils are solid inside the cell and what this is doing is melting those fats into into lipids and colloids and they're starting to sink into the cell wall and they're starting to now become loose and come out you'll, you'll see some smoke start to come out soon it's happening so fast marco the machine should blow up soon it doesn't normally go this long <laughs> so we're waiting for a little pop a darker now the, the, the beans are much darker yeah there's coming. no yellow left it's, it's sort of um very dark brown um they're really popping crackling and and they've almost yeah. you know halfway up through the popcorn machine now they've got a lot lighter i can't believe it's still going so I think we can pop these out now, and you can see it's really cracking. And are we still and on our smoke, first and they're quite dark. I, I almost feel like we're near second crack, and now the oils are developing. Can you see the smoke? Yes, yeah, smoke. Now really, we're developing really smoky. I can see the oil coming out of them. They're getting much slicker and smoother. Yeah. And, and, the, and the smoke oh is really rising God. off them. This is like a Starbucks full city roast oh now. And let's stop there before something nasty happens. Wow, it's so oily. Look at this. And they're being tipped out onto this wooden bench. Um, most and they are smoking. Look at that. Look at these. They're and they're two, shining. They're 200 degrees still. I love listening to the professor in the background swearing his head off how amazing this is. <laughs> Look at this, the smoke that's coming off there. And it's gorgeous. leaving them there. Now, of course, this is a point. They come out of the roaster mm. and they're almost squeaking. Mm. Now, a lot of people now spray them with water, which, of course, will give them a hell of a... A hell of a weight. And Marco's got his his thermal imaging camera on his phone out to tell us what the temperature of these beans are. What the temperature? So Marco? they're still 120 degrees. I mean, they were 200 when they came out, and you can see they'll sit there for that same temperature for quite a long time, and they'll stick to your hand if you touch them. And this is an amazing, and the smell is is rich and deep and, and and dark. It's almost like it's almost like a jungle, you know, like mm. in in the sort of the deepest, it's smokiest a, evening. It's surprising how good it is. Yeah. You think that you need a three thousand pound Ikawa. This is a twelve pound popcorn machine. There's a whole industry of nerdy popcorners, poppers, I think they're called. You heard this poppers out there. For any poppers, we are breaking the myth and saying that you can mm. roast your own coffee beans you, in a popcorn machine. And how long did that take? That was a couple of minutes. That was three, three, maybe four no. minutes. And uh, let's let these cool down. We can taste these later. Wow, in a, in a fantastic. Soft. So what we've, we've, we've witnessed there is this sort of the beginning of the roasting of coffee beans with air. Mm. And so was that, was that called pneumatic no, roasting? What's that called? Well, this, the, the hot air, what would you call that? That's the you first... Convection. 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 Because, so, I mean, you're heating the chamber. Yeah. The chamber is spinning. So it's like what it what it's resembling, which is the same thing. So this is the drum roaster, which is the, the principle of coffee roasting yeah. for a long time. So you have the drum, you put the beans in the drum, you, your big drum goes round and round. It's over a naked flame or some kind of flame underneath it. And it transfers the heat, obviously, through to the air. And that's moving around with the beans. So you're aiming to get... And actually, Marco's... Marco's machine in circulating around and around was doing something of the same thing in trying to get the beans uh, regularly roasted to the same way because you're as you spin the beans around, you're making sure they all get the same degree of contact. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. The Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927. You know what that's made me feel like, Marco, is that we've come through this huge journey to find ourselves at a mechanized point of coffee where the roasting almost feels like today's roasting. Yeah. And we are now almost at a turning point in coffee and its flavor and the appreciation of coffee. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it would. Uh, except I think what we should say is what we're actually going to hit is the, uh, the other side of this. We talked about the fact that um, Asia uh, had lost all its coffee and uh, Marco was mentioning, you know, how Ceylon, because of the coffee rust, has been replanted to tea. So in the beginning of the 20th century, the other thing that's happening is that um, people are looking for a solution to, well, what can we do uh, to regain coffee production in Asia and uh, indeed in Africa? And what they're doing is find a new plant called Robusta, which is much hardier against leaf rust, and planting that out. 
So um, we're getting to the point where our modern taste is going to change because we're going to start mixing Robusta and Arabica coffee. This is a really interesting point. I, I, I didn't want to go back to Jonathan's podcast too much, but there was a, a wonderful part of the podcast where it was said um, if you were to make a massive world coffee from the not before the 1900s and after the 1900s, what would it say? And we all sat there arrogantly thinking that our coffee now would be fantastic, and apparently not. Apparently the coffee was better back then. Maybe quality-wise there were some issues, but it was interesting that we ha- it's until yeah. the discovery of Robusta that we sent ourselves back in quality quite a long way. What do you mean? I'm, I'm understanding this. So there's a, a Robusta coffee's found, yeah. but you're saying that if we were to make coffee now versus 100 years ago, the coffee 100 years ago would have tasted better because it was made up of Arabica. Arabica. So Arabica yeah. tastes better than Robusta? Uh, most people would say yes. I'm going to let Marco uh, explain that because he has the, the great taste buds. But yeah, Robusta coffee, it's hardier, but it also tends to be more bittery, more rubbery. So a lot of what we think of as coffee today, you know, that harsh taste, that big rubbery smell on the nose, that tends to come from the Robusta bit of of a of a blend so you would notice uh, what we did was we took a kind of a representative sample of all the coffee in the world from those two periods all the different origins roasted them up and did them as one big blend and definitely the taste difference was quite substantial so yeah you put your nose in Marco's Robusta coffee so Marco what are you showing me here I can don't see don't mention the brand no, I can see so robusta. what's this this, this is a, Robusta okay so I'm famous Robusta coffee from Italy see what you're getting on the nose there I'm after. smelling a Robusta ground coffee it's like toffee but look for a the, little muddy it's very burnt rubber charcoal kind of thing mm. at the back which you'll get more in the flavour than well, probably yeah. the, the, the nose uh, a lot of coffee you get it on the nose because mm. I think you get it on the nose um, but it's it, on the nose it can taste good and this is the other thing that mm. uh, we, we will no doubt go on and talk about when we talk about espresso Marco mm. you know it has qualities that visually and, and um, in your nose are great, but in your mouth, mm. it's a different. So this is Robusta. Uh, what about, what's Arib- Ar- 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 Arabica? Arabica. Yeah, look, Arabica Robusta, Arabica. obviously we, we found Arabica first and it's the much nicer, mellower, more expensive coffee. This was sort of um, um, pushed because it was, it was uh, I think there was, a, there was a, something to say about caffeine is a sort of natural pesticide as well. So as the Robusta grows, the insects and stuff don't touch it so much. Um, but more importantly, Robusta has got half of everything we're looking for and three times everything we don't want. So it's got half the oils and stuff that we're actually paying for. Mm. Because when we buy coffee, we're not buying the wood. Mm. I don't want the wood. I'm buying the oil that's mm. in the wood. You're selling me, this is oily soy sawdust. I want to extract the oil from the wood, the cellulose material, Mm. and then we chuck it away. We don't Mm. keep the wood. You shouldn't even put too much of it in your garden. I hear people Mm. chucking this stuff all over their gardens. Starbucks has bleached more gardens in the UK than the Luftwaffe because if you put more than 10% in this garden, it's acidic as anything. And it can make, um, it's good for tomatoes and mushrooms and things, but you you can't put too much into your garden. Sorry, your point, Jonathan, that... Robusta arrives, yeah. and the world of coffee changes. And I think we're going to need to get onto that point as we move through the next decades. But Marco, you've popcorn roasted some coffee. Now we need to get episode two finished, and I want to finish it on a serious high. Mm. Um, can you finish off what we were doing with these coffee beans because they're lying here on this wooden surface? I was surface. letting them cool down. Well, they're, they're cold now. Well, they're cold now. Can we? Can we? Are we going to grind them and taste them, or? Yeah. Because um, that is dark. I mean, it's like a dark chocolate. It's dark chocolate, and if you could see them alongside what started the roast, which is this sort of very light, pale, almost olive green, and it's almost twice the size, this uh, one, the, the, the roasted coffee bean to the raw green coffee bean, is it's almost doubled in size. What are we going to do with these it, it, now, Marco? It increases 60% and it loses 20% of weight. We're going to throw these into the, into the grinder, and... Grind these up straight away. They're very oily. I've never taken mm. them this far before. The oil has really come out. So Marco's just just tipping the toasted coffee beans into his grinder. We're going to grind them up. Here we go. And and then what are we going to do with them? Once they're ground, how, what, what coffee are we going to make? I think we could um, stick them through the filter machine or we could put them in the siphon. And um, there we are. They're coming through now. Look how black that is. It's dark, dusty. Right, so Marco... 
the the consummate professional is looking now to grind every single gram of these dark brown popcorn roasted oh, coffee beans it's so dark well oh, let me smell that marco let me smell that that's just it's a uh, almost like fine black tea leaves i mean it's like dark as but it smells beautiful it smells like robusta mm. but it isn't it does jonathan what's it smell earthy. like it does it smells very earthy to me very earthy mm-hmm. very well developed coffee that would some people take their coffee that far if we call it full city roast isn't it? that's a very american yeah, thing I, I, sometimes when you've got a low quality coffee you can over roast it to, to burn off some caffeine yeah. you know and it and, and and they think it sort of makes the coffee better quality uh by over roasting it and burning off some of that caffeine so what you do i mean when you roast it high you're actually trying to caramelize the, the beans so with this roast i would say what will taste is less the coffee bean and more the roast the qualities of the inherent qualities of the roast so um you'll be familiar arthur with that idea of you know when you cook a joint of meat and you you know you do it high and you sort of caramelize it you're almost tasting the the kind of the way that you caramelize the oil in the meat rather than the actual flesh aren't you and that's the same sort of thing with this kind of a developed level of roast i'd say so marco is now got a, a bunsen burner out and he's going to be lighting the uh is that methylated spirit i love Marco. again we're in willy wonka's coffee factory so he's just he's just blowtorched the methylated spirit and this is going to boil and so what is it you're doing here marco can you explain to me it's just going to put i i, I love this um old siphon because this is an old 1800s but we're, we're in the right era when you said to me how am i going to make that coffee i thought have i got anything from the yeah, right era perfect. so i thought this was the perfect thing because also we can do this again at the end because this is also uh, has an electric base over there and I can take this and put it on the new uh, induction base over there so it, at the moment we're going 1800s but if I so put it on the other thing it becomes very modern so we've got a, a wick that is burning and we've got a sort of blue orangey flame and it's it's sitting over a um well just a a tub of water which is a, a glass vial and we're going to be boiling the water and it, what's that water going to do then it's going to go up via a vacuum so what's going to happen now this is basically if you can imagine the mocha pot even at the base of a mocha pot we heat the water in the bottoms in the bottom chamber and the water as it heats expands and it has to go somewhere so there's a glass tube going into the into the container where as the water heats and expands it's going to travel up into the top container now with the italian mocha pot you'd be done and dusted and just pour it out and drink it but with this this one particular we're going to use a negative pressure once it spoils and it all comes up to the top we leave it there for a good two minutes and we let it percolate we let it brew it's, it's a little way off and as it comes up it's we let it mix for a bit and so i don't want to talk about it for the next five minutes and let it sort of just come up while we're talking once it's come up we remove the flame and it causes a vacuum in the bottom a negative pressure and it's going to suck everything back down and as it's sucked down it's going to go through the filter it's going to go past the muslin filter so we are into the 19th century the end of the 19th century we've got coffee being roasted um, in a more modern way is being ground and there are new ways of turning coffee into a, a more delicious drink rather than something that might have been a little bit acrid or a little bit aggressive it now looks like there's a refinement to coffee uh, is that right Jonathan? well it's a refinement to what we're doing in terms of prepping it without doubt uh, and then the question is really how you'll feel about the taste so the, the, the difference, isn't it, between the blends, as we've talked about, the, the change in blend, which creates a different taste in coffee. But there's certainly a refinement in the brewing of the coffee and, of course, just the application of the science. Marco's talking about vacuuming. So, you know, this is the sort of thing that we were doing in the 19th century that really hadn't been thought about before. You know, before we'd have a very direct contact coffee. You know, it was a big, it was a big thing when we were using the sock. Now we're, now we're controlling many more elements in this, introducing more elements and um yeah I, I guess we would say it's a more precision attempt at, at preparing coffee and so let, let's move the timeline forward then because this is now more refinement there's a vacuum we've got a live flame this like you say marco is is something that begins in the uh, late 19th century but almost nowadays it's super trendy in all the in, in the coffee shops but how do we get 
through the, to the early 20th century and into what could be construed as a modern coffee. You mentioned just a bit earlier a mocha, is that right? Should we try and get to the yeah. 1930s, 40s and 50s? We get there um, by the beginning of 1900. The espresso machine is invented, but we're talking the mocha is coming in the 30s. Yeah, the mocha is in the 1930s. Remember when we say the espresso machine is invented, we're thinking about an espresso machine only using a tiny bit of pressure. Mm. So actually, because the key, the key thing here as with the mocha, is what forces this water up? What forces it up is actually the pressure that comes from the steam on the top of the water will push, you know, as that expands, that pushes it down and up through your filter. And that's your, that's your mocha. So the interesting thing about the mocha is, yeah, it's the 1930s, uh, and uh, the person who, who invented it, Mr. Bialetti, is supposed to be inspired by the functioning of a washing machine. Uh, and he saw how a washing machine worked, and... Um, use that to devise the mocha and but the great thing about the mocha is of course it's very cheap it's very functional uh, and it's therefore mass produced and it's really mass produced in the 1950s to give you the sort of you know aluminium little stove pot coffee pot so you can really reduce things down to a level that everyone can do in their house and mocha is actually the name of a city in in yemen are they t- tipping their hat to that earlier existence because i mean we've been through you know nearly 2000 years or 1500 yeah. years of, of coffee and mocha has come back into the the narrative of coffee uh, is it because mocha the coffee pot was created there or it's just respect for it's definitely it's about respect without doubt they call it a mocha pot uh, for respecting that kind of history mocha is probably the most overused word in coffee in the sense that you've got mocha the port you've got mocha the type of varietal of coffee you've got mocha the mocha pot you've got mocha and mocha chino the kind of chocolate Mm. confections that we get in the coffee shops today so there's loads of different ways that people use that mocha but it is all about a reference back to that first coffee port that's the that's the original mocha Um, mocha for me marco is always synonymous with my experience of coffee in italy i don't know why but i was stay with an uh, Italian friend's mother that she would put the little mocha pot on after lunch and dinner and you'd have these little mocha pots come to the table and they'd pour it out with sugar is that right my mother is my mother's convinced that um the the, the 12 mocha pot is doesn't make good coffee the mocha pot is a, is a very funny thing it's all wrong it sits on a flame it should burn the coffee, but it doesn't. It's a, one of those sort of anomalies where it shouldn't make good coffee, but it does. It, and it's a very different coffee. It's not espresso. It doesn't go through the kind of pressures. People used to say that things like Aeropresso Mocha make espresso. They do not. There's nowhere near the kind of pressures. I mean, unless you can push an Aeropress down with 9,000 PSI, you're not making espresso. And so these low-pressure machines, um, it, these are 70% of the Italian market in Italy. These are massive, massive things. More I think you've underestimated it. Is it bigger? Well, it's dropping now because of capsules, but I mean, in terms of, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a kitchen in Italy that didn't have a mocha pot in it. I I mean, in fact, I'd almost defy you to find one. But the thing with the mocha pot is, the more you use it, the better the coffee tastes. If you use it, my my grandmother uses it 10 times a day, and the coffee's fantastic. Now, my mother pulls out the 12th one at Christmas, and she says the coffee's terrible. Well, it's because she only uses it at Christmas. You know, the, the, the 12 cup one only gets pulled out that day. So it's a very funny thing when you buy your mocha pot, there's a whole ritual of chucking it in a bucket of coffee and never to ever put it in the dishwasher. And there's a, there's a whole almost Chinese tea service going on with the mocha pot, the, the, the way that you make it. And it's got, a real, it's got a real cultural place in the Italian. You come round to Italy, uh, if you meet someone in Italy, you, you, you straight away go for a coffee. You know, it's, a, it's the first thing that you do. We, we joke with each other in Italy, when you get married in England, you get how many toasters did you get? In Italy, it's how many coffee machines did you get? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that bigger thing. Now, as, uh, as Marco's talking, we are seeing probably a third of the water now being lifted up via a sort of steaming mechanism into the coffee grinds that we created from the popcorn roasted coffee and it's the, you know this sort of upper chamber is now filling with 
the coffee just lifting up off the base of the glass container with the water underneath it. And I can see the coffee granules just dancing in this very light colored water. And, and there are different levels to the color of the water. Uh, and the base of the coffee that's lifting, it's almost like a cake that's sitting on top of water. And, and it's sort of lifting and lifting very, very slowly. And it, it shouldn't and, be quicker. I'll be honest, I think that the flame, I, I, I do it normally with the induction base on the bottom and it comes up straight away. I've never done it with the flame before. It's very, very slow. But as soon as most of that water, as soon as that water goes to the end of the tube, you're gonna see it stir the coffee, really vigorously stir the coffee. At the same time, we've got an 1850s one going on. We've got the 1930s going on on the other corner with the mocha pot and it's the same sort of thing happening. You can hear it now. It's starting to, it's starting to get to the point where it's gonna turn it. And yeah, the, the, the water's just about boiling now. And you know, what is, is so amazing to see is that such an, an old system of, of coffee making is, is it's going to be delicious this coffee i'm so excited to taste it well it's the one that oh the fingers are crossed stuff we roasted <laughs> in the popcorn machine so i haven't put anything good in there but now oh, it's going now it, 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 it's bubbling it's lifting and suddenly all of the water is lifting up out of the bottom chamber into the top chamber you can hear the bubbles now and it's really stirring and at this point we take it away and now the and water we let it reverse and he's Marco's pulled the flame from underneath yeah. and suddenly it reverses and there's this sort of backwash of this coffee just reversing itself back down into the chamber that the water came up out of through the filter. So it's being filtered, backwashed, and now we have this beautiful, this is sort of, yeah, I mean, it's coffee-coloured water, isn't it? It's just fantastic. And what's left behind in the upper chamber is just a sort of a hot cake of what was popcorn roasted coffee beans very exciting Marco we've got to taste this and, and, and get off this episode because um, we're taking the listeners time here but let's have a taste of this and we'll jump off next time we're going to be jumping into the 1950s I know that coffee certainly in London changes um, we have some real different um, coffee shops opening up Marco's going to tell us all about them but been very much about finishing off the history of coffee where it came from the, the issues around it, traveling the world, some, oh, Marco's slightly grimacing. I want to taste this, Marco, now, come on. Jonathan, what do you think? Doesn't smell good on the nose, I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> so what have we done, Marco? We, we've, we've, is this an experiment? Yeah, I've, I've ingeniously turned Arabica into Robusta here, I think. Just take, I've over, we, we burnt it on the, cough, on the popcorn machine. We took it way past where it was happy. Hmm. The oils all came out and they all burnt. But what's it tasting like? I haven't tasted it. Oh, I quite like it. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's, it's, it's not, not, bad, it's not as smell. bad as it smells. It's certainly a wake you up oh, coffee. Okay, I couldn't stand the smell of it. No, but it, the smell was bad, but the taste is not so bad. And it's, the coffee's a really funny thing. You know, so many coffees smell nicer than they taste. This one tastes nicer than it smells. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've de defied the laws of physics and chemistry here in this kitchen today, because that's in, that smells terrible compared we've to defined, how it tastes. We've the entire laws of sensory, because the sensory law would always say, start with your nose, mm. and that will tell you where you are going. But uh, Well, but, you know, look, this is the coffee table. We are the Willy Wonkers of coffee right now. Uh, on food fm the coffee table marco uh, and jonathan thank you so much for joining us next for the journey from the 1950s all the way up to let's say 2021 um, i really want to get my teeth into the next episode but but thank you very much this has been a, an in-depth view on the history of coffee around the world to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com the Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927.